ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. When an author finishes writing a book and sends it off to the publisher, it's never a pristine, perfect manuscript. Inevitably, there are going to be thousands of little errors in spelling and punctuation. There are going to be words that don't mean what the author thinks they mean. There are going to be clunky, badly constructed sentences that are hard to follow or make no sense at all. And so that's when the copy editor steps in. Benjamin Dreyer works at the publisher Random House in the United States, where he's vice president, executive, managing editor and copy chief. Over the years, Benjamin has copy edited books by many world-renowned authors. He's got strong ideas about what works and what doesn't work on the page, but he's not mean, he's not the grammar police, and he thinks there are definitely some old rules that should be thrown in the bin. Benjamin's written a wonderful guide that's titled Dryer's English, an utterly correct guide to clarity and style. And I recorded this conversation with him at this year's Melbourne Writers' Festival at the State Library of Victoria. First of all, Benjamin, for people who are non-writers here, what does a copy editor actually do? Okay, um, what a copy editor does is... Uh, once the author and the editor who actually acquired the book for the house, the person I tend to refer to as the editor-editor, once the editor-editor and the author have decided that um, a book is good to go, it's done, it's publishable, it's everything that they have been talking about for one year, two years, three years, you know, your, your narrative arc, your characters, I want more of her, I want less of him, wouldn't it be better if the last chapter were the first chapter or the first chapter were the last chapter? I mean, all the big heavy lifting. Once that's done, it gets passed on to a copy editor. The copy editor is the person who goes through a manuscript and does lots and lots of things. Copy editor checks to make sure that all the words are spelled correctly. Uh, The copy editor checks to make sure that the word that the author is using is the word that the author should be using and not, you know, and not a homophone of that word. You're in there, you're regularizing punctuation, if that is what is called for, and more often than not it is, because you like your punctuation to be tidy, If you're working on a novel, you also have to sort of keep track of lots of logistical things, like to make sure that the uh, characters in the novel are all aging at the same rate. (laughs) Unless, of course, it's a novel that's predicated on people not aging at the same rate. Um, but there are, there are other things you get to do as, uh, as well. You, you get, for instance, to point out to an author, uh, all authors have a collection of pet words. You're on the lookout for those. Um, like what? Like what kind of pet words? Uh, I used to work with an author who was so keen on the word murmur. <laughs> All his characters are always murmuring. <laughs> and I pointed it out, and I would suggest after the first three, uh, you know, you might want to start varying these bit by bit. And then he would go back in and he would, he would do that as he was reviewing the copy editing. But the one thing that he did reveal to me when we had a conversation uh, subsequently is, is that he didn't even try to stop himself from using the word 
because he knew I was going to go in and point it out, so why should he bother? <laughs> What's the role of the copy editor then? Do you see it as like a collaborator or an assistant or a, a minder? What do you, how do you see that, that role? It's a, it's a backup job. I think that the, the thing that is, is, is most important about a copy editor is the copy editor needs to recognize that their responsibility is to help make the manuscript, to help make the book into the best possible version of itself that it can be. I don't go into a manuscript when I'm copy editing and think, oh, I'm going to turn it into what I think is a good book. My job is to turn it into the author's book in the best fine-tuned, polished, sharp fashion I possibly can. I'm terribly grateful for the work of copy editors with my own manuscripts for books. But are all authors quite so grateful? Do they, do they bitch and moan a lot of the time? Do they go, no, I am going to use this. You, you Fascist, you can't tell me what to do. You're not the boss of me, Mr Benjamin Dreyer. I, I have found over time that good authors like to be well copy edited. And of course, the important words are good and well. Um, I find that authors who are not so hot, and back in my early days as a freelancer when basically if a job is put in front of you, you take it, because you always want to be in that yes stance. I worked on a lot of manuscripts that were pretty terrible. And you do the best you can, but there's a certain sort of sadness inherent in realizing that you are doing the best you can, but there's only so much that you can do. <laughs> But I have certainly found that, that good authors, the authors that I've worked with who are excellent at their craft, they're very grateful. That doesn't mean that they have to say yes all the time. If you can have an acceptance rate in your, in your copy editing of you know, anything between 80 and 85, 90% on a really good day, then you're doing your job just right. If an author accepted every change I ever suggested, I, I think my feelings would be hurt. I would think, you didn't even care enough to tell me to, you know, piss off. <laughs> <laughs> Are there authors who literally go to track changes in Microsoft Word and go accept all without even, without even looking at what you've done? In my experience, no. Right. Yeah. They, they, they do go through, and they really like it, because nobody is ever going to read your manuscript, not your editor, not your mother, nobody is ever going to read your manuscript quite so carefully as your copy editor is going to read your manuscript. You're speaking there about pet words and phrases in radio, the equivalent term in, in Australia anyway is crutch words. So when you're getting an air check in radio, your program director will be looking for, listening for certain crutch words you keep returning to again and again. And having had that experience being air checked and hearing a crutch word come up again, I just feel like sinking into the earth. I'm so mortified by it. Is it a mortifying process sometimes for writers to run into these crutch words? Yes, and I know that firsthand. Um, oh, because <laughs> when I was narrating my own audio book, and I had been brilliantly copy edited, and we could do maybe a detour into that, because that, that was a whole adventure. It's like, who's going who's gonna to copy edit him? Yeah. Um, Who watches The Watchmen, yes. Yes, but when, so I was in the studio recording my book, uh, there, there were two things that happened. One, I have a rule about what makes a good sentence. And that rule is that a sentence can be as long as it needs to be. It can twist, it can turn, it can go around parentheses, it can come out the other side. If the reader can get from the beginning of the sentence to the end of the sentence without having to duck back because you sent the reader in the wrong direction, 
with a misplaced piece of punctuation or a verb that the reader mistook for a noun, you know, one of those sorts of things, then that's a good sentence. I found as I was recording my audiobook that I had a couple of sentences that didn't do that, and I got lost <laughs> trying to record them, and I'd written them. <laughs> Happily, there was still a little time, there was still a little time to fix it. The, the other thing that I had not noticed and that nobody had noticed to that point is that I am excessively fond of the phrase garden variety. <laughs> and I realized as we're narrating, it's like, okay, that was the third one. And then there was a fourth and then there was a fifth. And happily, there was still just enough time to go back. I mean, not, of course I could fix whatever I wanted while we were recording it, but there was just enough time to go back to the print version before we went to press and fix a few things. Just so we can feel better about all this, do you find having interviewed some really major international authors that they do all this themselves, that they are prone to these pet words, that they are prone to uh, strange and obtuse sentences? Um, I mean, I have worked indeed with a lot of absolutely spectacular authors, but they all need an extra set of eyes, and, and they need somebody to call them out on some of their bad habits, as, for instance, my copy editor called me out on, on most of my bad habits, the ones that I hadn't already been trying to fix. Your book begins with this wonderful opening chapter, if you like. It's called The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up Your Prose. Go a week without writing, very, rather, really, quite, in fact. When writers lean on those words, like my cat is very clever, my cat is rather clever, really clever, quite clever, what effect does that have on the reader when they use those kind of sort of low-key intensifiers like that? I mean, I think particularly with the word very, which we all lean on a lot, I think that writers use the word very because they're trying to push their argument. They're, they're really trying to like, you know, uh, not just smart, very smart, not just hungry, very hungry. But the thing is, it takes on a sort of kind of pleading tone, like you don't really believe it. And I think that if a writer says that somebody is, is smart or is hungry, it's like, boop, it says it, it did it. It did, it did the thing you wanted it to do. And the very doesn't add anything to it. And then of course you always have the opportunity to accelerate you know, your adjectives. A very smart person is brilliant. If you're very hungry, you're famished. There's always another word. And, and there's always another word that can stand on its own. Is there something sort of a bit unpleasantly coercive sometimes in the text when you use those intensifiers. It sounds, on the page to me, it feels like the very bad Australian habit of using the rising inflection at the end of a sentence all the time when you talk like that with someone and then this person never gave me the money they were supposed to give me. There's, and you find yourself nodding in a, a, a agreement all the time. There's something slightly coercive about using those intensifiers. I mean, I think that, they, I think that you can use them in an attempt, I think that people use them in an attempt to sort of cozy up to the reader, to get the reader on their side. I think, as I've said, I think that writers do it sometimes to shore up their own arguments. And I think if you can pare that stuff away and just have the courage to say what it is you have to say and not be so cozy and not be so coercive, you're going to end up with a better piece of writing. Then you follow that with uh, another wonderful chapter, which is about the non-rules, the rules that people think are rules that really don't work very well at all. And the first one of these is, the rule that says you should never begin a sentence with the word and or the word but. 
Now, it's really liberating for me to, to read that because I do that occasionally and feel bad every time I do it. But what should writers bear in mind when they want to begin a sentence with and or but? I mean, I think that we were all taught in school not to do that. I, you know, it was endlessly corrected. Not, don't do that, don't do that. And it's not always the best way to begin a sentence because sometimes it's simply picking up a thought in midair that needs to be well-established. Um, there's a lot of reasons why it might not work, but occasionally it will work extraordinarily well, and then you should just do it. You should just, you know, you should do it. I mean, as a copy editor, I'm certainly going to notice if an author has begun three sentences and two paragraphs with the word but, and I will suggest you might want to, like, get rid of one of those, take two of those sentences, put them together, use a semicolon. There are other ways to do things because hitting any note over and over again is, is, is a bit sort of a weakening thing. I mean, in the same way that I'm, I'm going to notice if an author has used the not only X but also Y construction repeatedly, which lots of writers do, I'm guilty of it. I'm always very mindful of it, but I'm really mindful of it when I'm, when I'm copy editing. Well, your second non-rule is a big one that I think most pedants know and love, which is you should never split an infinitive. The most famous one being the split infinitive at the titles of Star Trek, which is to boldly go where no man has gone before. You think that's a non-rule? And, and, and of the, of the non-rules, it's, it's the nonest. <laughs> Um, it, it was apparently concocted as a lot of, of rules that we think are age-old and terribly important, uh, concocted in the 19th century by self-designated grammarians. I guess, well, what does that make me? Um, uh, you know, the comment I remember encountering about the uh, establishment of the no-split infinitive rule is that it was created by somebody who really rather wished that everybody was speaking Greek. <laughs> It, it doesn't do anything, it doesn't say anything. Uh, if, if anything, the unsplit infinitive, you know, the boldly to go, sounds not like English. It's a, an awkward and uh, not a very happy construction. And this is my favourite non-rule. One should never end a sentence with a preposition. Now, there's the famous story that many people know that Winston Churchill once received a garbled memo where the uh, Oxford-educated... A bureaucrat had written a sentence so torturously that it wouldn't end in a preposition, and Churchill was said to have responded, this is a lot of nonsense up with which I will not put. <laughs> but you, you, sir, have a far better anecdote that illustrates this issue. Yes, this is a good story. I can't remember where I first encountered it, but it's a good one. So you have two women who were seated next to each other at a dinner party. Now, of course, if I'm copy editing the story, the first thing I'm going to point out to the person telling it is that two women are not going to be seated next to each other at a dinner party. It's going to be boy, girl, boy, girl, boy, girl. But for the purposes of the story. Two women are seated next to each other at a dinner party. One of them is a very sort of frosty matron. Think Margaret Dumont from the Marx Brothers movies, except not nice or not funny and not in any way engaging. The other one is a sort of a southern belle, very sort of blonde and pink and frilly. So Barbara Cartland playing Scarlett O'Hara. <laughs> And the southern woman turns to the frosty matron and she says, so, where y'all from? And the frosty matron turns to the southern belle and says, I'm from a place where we don't end our sentences with prepositions. <laughs> 
And the southern woman says, oh, so where are y'all from, bitch? <laughs> The thing about that, though, is it, it sort of confirms the idea, because it's definitely where you're from, bitch, is definitely a better sentence yes. than where you're from, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> so this book is the, uh, what would you call it, the English English edition of this? You, the first one was the American English yes. edition. This is translated for English English speakers <laughs> and, to some degree, Australian speakers. We sort of exist in this strange no-man's land between both versions of English. When you translate, if that's the right word, uh, a book that's been written in American English into British English. What typically happens at your publishing house? It was a very, inter it was a very interesting thing to do it, and, and we, we did it kind of in a hurry, but I had great uh, assistance from uh, not only my, my London editor, but my London copy editor, who did a lot of the heavy lifting, put all those U's in, you know, words like neighbor and odor, which is why the book is longer than, than the American version. <laughs> There's a section in the American version of the book which is called How Not to Write Like a Brit. <laughs> so we sort of changed that so it wouldn't be quite so adversarial. Every now and then I would add something that was just you know, a little more for the new home team. Uh, there's a list of proper nouns, uh, which is sort of the germ of the book. It was just, you know, all the names that writers tend to get wrong that copy editors always need to get right. And of course, I could have just dispatched the whole subject with, if you see a name, look it up, but what's the fun of that? Um, so I, I added entries on Olivia Coleman. Uh, and, and I added an entry on Fanny Craddock, C-R-A, not double D-O-C-K, because I thought that would amuse my, that would amuse my new reader. Did you discover well, that the word Fanny means a completely different thing in yes. uh, both? Yes, oh, but I discovered that a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> to, the, to the point where the magic faraway tree by Enid Blyton, as I grew up, the main characters were called Fanny and Dick. <laughs> and when I read them to my own children, they'd been magically transmuted into Franny and Rick. But you know, that sort of translation process, which of course we do in the United States in the other direction, has to be done with great sensitivity. We may, with the cooperation of the author, regularize spelling for American spelling, regularize punctuation for American punctuation, you know, take all those commas that are sitting outside of the quotation marks and put them inside, take the single quotes, turn them into double quotes. Nothing that defaces anything. Never, of course, changing important vocabulary. I mean, you're not going to have a British person talk about an elevator when a British person is going to talk about a lift. And you're going to assume that your American reader is smart enough to know what they are reading. But every now and then, you'll encounter something that's, well, the way I look at it is if, if I don't know it, and, and I'm pretty slavishly devoted to my UK writing, then maybe it's a little too obscure. But then you try to find something that fits both sides of the Atlantic. And it can be a little tricky, but it has to be done with, with just great care. Just with the sheer power and volume of American popular culture, American words are uh, coming into use here and in Britain all the time. Are there British words or even Australian words that are, are going the other way, are somehow getting past the defences at Ellis Island and creeping into mainland United States? Um, I think so. I mean, I remember learning the word shirty at some point and only learning much later that it's not an Americanism. 
And I think that that process has accelerated in, in the last couple of decades, particularly because we have an increasingly shared culture, because we have the internet. And so you just sort of absorb things. You know, you just sort of absorb things. I mean, I, I remember, um, I remember back in the late 1970s becoming absolutely addicted to watching Prisoner Cell Block H. Oh. <laughs> My favorite thing. The moment when the ironing board goes down, I'm top dog round here. Exactly. <laughs> that, that, That's how I learned to say struth. 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 Crikey. <laughs> Before we went on, you were talking about the word twee. How did you encounter that? I, I encountered the word twee for the first time in a book in maybe the late 1980s, early 1990s, and somebody was talking about some twee little musical comedy. Da, 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 da. And it's like, it was an interesting looking word. I was able to infer from context what it probably meant. But then I went to look it up in the dictionary. I went to look up in my, you know, my Merriam-Webster's Collegiate Dictionary, and it wasn't there. It simply wasn't there, which is disconcerting. <laughs> um, but it made the journey, it made the journey fully into the United States where it's the most American of American words now. If you live in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and you play in a band, especially if you play the ukulele, <laughs> you're twee. <laughs> it's devastating, yeah. Um, <laughs> one of the things a uh, copy editor is often looking out for is the passive voice. It's not great. A classic example that's used in, in Australia is by Australian politicians and public figures. If they get caught getting drunk and tearing up a strip joint in Hong Kong and they're asked to account for themselves, they will say something like, it transpired that alcohol was brought to the table, then it transpired that this happened, and there's the passive voice all the way through there. It was a way of absolving yourself. Like, I, I, I didn't do anything. This, this, this stuff just happened, okay? It just happened. Mistakes what? were made. <laughs> <laughs> is there ever any excuse for using the passive voice? There, in fact, is often a good excuse for using the passive voice, particularly if you're trying to narrate an action and you don't know who did it the refrigerator was left open, period. You're trying to establish that the refrigerator is left open, you don't happen to know. You could say somebody left the refrigerator open, but you're simply trying to point the status of the refrigerator. And the other one is just you're pointing to the identity then, and that's like a red herring, Yeah, isn't it? and sometimes, of course, you know, uh, you know, I mean, I try in, in, in departmental conversations to speak as directly as is humanly possible, but every now and then something goes wrong, and I simply want to illuminate the error without focusing on who did it, and I will, lapse into, I will lapse into the passive voice. <laughs> One of the um, things I'm looking at when I'm editing interviews is framing language around a subject. Australians are addicted to the word basically <laughs> to then go and describe something that isn't basic at all. It's extremely <laughs> complex. Basically, and that's a bit of a kind of a verbal placeholder. Are you on the lookout for placeholders like that on the page? Actually. Actually. <laughs> Actually, I didn't realize how much I said the word actually and how much my sister said the word actually until her two-year-old son said, hand to God, he said, actually, I like peas. And I was like... <laughs> so we all had to rid ourselves of that habit. I, I, I truly think that of all those little sort of throat-clearing words, each of which can be justified occasionally, you know, a very, a rather, a quite. There's never a justification for actually just dispose of it. 
You are strongly in favour of the use of the Oxford comma, as am I. I love the... Come on, applaud if you... If you yeah. But those who are opposed to the Oxford comma, please boo right now. Oh, my God, look at that. We've been torn apart over the use of the Oxford comma. Tell me how you see the use of the Oxford comma, and if you don't mind, please describe exactly what, what the Oxford comma is for those who don't know. The, the Oxford comma, also known as the serial comma or the series comma, is the comma that you would set before the last item in a list of items. So, for instance, easily, apples, pears, and cherries. Apples, comma, pears, comma, and cherries. People who advocate for the use of that comma will always do it, always do it. People who don't like that comma will never do it. Book people, at least in the United States, all use it. Journalists all don't use it. When I started at Random House nearly 30 years ago, I remember Two things. One, I was told, very important thing, Random House does not have a house style, which is a very big statement and which is essentially true. And basically all that really means is you take every manuscript as it comes. You have to deal with the manuscript as the manuscript. But we did have a house rule. And the house rule was impose the series comma and don't even ask in the margin if it's okay. <laughs> Just do it. Of course, the things that you are trained to do, you think are good. And I, you couldn't pry the series comma out of my hands. You just, you just can't. I think that that comma always helps. It's always a little more clarifying than it not being there. And it never does any harm. So just use it. And to writers who say, oh, well, I use it when it's helpful and I don't use it when it's not necessary, the thing that I've always noticed about those writers is they always use it when it's completely not necessary <laughs> and when you're desperate for a comma to clarify that something's changing, then they don't want to use it. Podcast. Broadcast. You're listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. We were talking about the use of the Oxford comma in sentences, which is nothing more than inserting a final comma in a list, as in, Cars, comma, buses, comma, and trains. Believe it or not, this tiny comma is kind of controversial among writers and journalists and editors. Well, the example you have of what can go wrong if you don't use the Oxford comma is a apparently famous sentence that was published in the Times in London. I was unaware of this famous sentence. I'm so glad I know about it now. But the sentence that does not use the Oxford comma goes like this. Highlights of his global tour include an encounter with Nelson Mandela, a demigod, and a dildo collector. (laughs) 
which really needs an apostrophe between those two items, I would say. That's a bit of a mess of a sentence to begin with, though, well, isn't it? Well, and that's the thing. And that, that, that's a very famous example that is always trotted out in conversations about the Oxford or the series comma. It is a real sentence. But what it does illustrate, as you've just suggested, is that not every sentence can simply be fixed by putting a serious comma in. Some sentences need to be fixed in other ways. They need to be reordered. You can fix that sentence and take the grisly little joke out of it by just putting the elements in a slightly different, a slightly different order. Well, you, you can fix it initially by saying an encounter with Nelson Mandela, comma, a demigod, comma, and a dildo collector, but it's still a bit of a mess, though, yeah. as you say. So you need to rework the elements of the sentence to make it, make it work better. R writing this book yourself, as you say, the tone of this is wonderful. It's very intimate, very well-informed, very relaxed. It feels like talking to a trusted confidant or something like that. Did you just sort of write it as it came to the page, or did it take you a while to strike this tone? It... it it, it took me a while. It took me a lot longer to write the book than any of us thought it was going to, including the people I signed the contract with who said, you'll turn the manuscript in in 12 months. It's like, well, you know, okay, maybe not. I wrote tens of thousands of very bad, turgid, boring words and deleted them. And I was beginning to despair that was I that, was... Was that stage fright, do you think, to some degree? I, I think it... I mean, I think that it was stage fright. I think that it was that I, I wasn't used to writing in the long form. I mean, I, I would, you know, I, I, I can go to Twitter and make quip, like, like, you know, just like anybody, but to write a whole book requires slightly longer thought processes. And at a certain point, I didn't think I could, I didn't think I could do it. So what changed? One day, I thought, well, you know, you've been on Twitter, you're trying to be everybody's best friend, the copy editor. It's like, can you try to capture that voice on the page in a slightly longer form. And once I did that, it began to flow. And I remember, I mean, I had gone into the office of my editor, you know, weeping, nearly. You know, <laughs> please let me out of this contract. I don't think I can do it. And he laughed in my face and said, just go home and get back to work, please. And I went back home and I did get back to work and I presented him with some pages and he just sort of looked at them and he was like, this is what we've been waiting for. And it wasn't as if I went into a trance and the next thing I know I'd written 75,000 words. Uh, I wish. But it flowed really well uh, uh, from that point on. Uh, one of the nicest things that happened is that when I did finally share um, the Bound Galley, you know, the sort of the pre-version of the finished book that they send out for, you know, reviews and, and, and things like that, usually maybe six months before the book goes on sale. That was when I finally shared it with my, with my mother. I had just not been sharing my writing with her, but I shared it with her. Um, she read it, and she said, it sounds just like you. Oh, that's perfect. It reminds me of what George Saunders said, that he, he tried for many years to be right serious fiction because he thought that's what you should be as a writer, you should write serious fiction. And personally, he was very funny. Uh, and, and his wife finally cajoled him into giving himself permission to be funny on the page. And that's when he went from being an obscure author that no one read to an author that people absolutely love and adore and read all the time. You need to give yourself permission to loosen up and enjoy what you're writing and allow your, your natural humour to come through. And, and George, is, I mean, George is a wonderful example because I've had the pleasure of being a sort of witness to his career, starting with Civil War Land and Bad Decline and then moving up through Lincoln and the Bardo and... 
I really loved Civil War Land and Bad Decline, which is a collection of very peculiar short stories. But one of the things that's shown up increasingly in his writing is his really lovely heart. And now I find his work not simply fascinating, but also desperately moving. When you were doing the audiobook, did you find that there, as you, there were words you didn't know how to... I found this with my own audiobooks. I, I encountered... I'd written words, and I thought, I don't know how to say this word. <laughs> yeah, no, we had, we, had, we had a bunch of those. It was like words that I had never actually said out loud. And, and happily, <laughs> most of the online dictionaries talk, so, so that's very helpful. But every now and then, if you really need to be sure of something like an obscure proper noun, then you're wandering around YouTube hoping that you can find the person being interviewed and being introduced so you can hear how their name is pronounced. <laughs> you grew up in New York, Benjamin, which has a wonderful public library system there. Is that how your reading life began? What do you remember of the beginning of your reading life? I, I remember the, the, the beginning of my reading life is I'm living in Jackson Heights, Queens, which is one of the boroughs that's not Manhattan and thus not authentically the city. And I asked my mom this when I, when I was working on the book, and particularly when I was about to be in conversation on the subject of the book. I said, I don't remember how I learned to read. And she said, I would sit and read with you, and at a certain point, you just started doing it. And I know that I'm not unique in that. I mean, I've heard that story from other people. I still marvel at that absolute magic of how those little scrawly things on pages take on, take on meaning and take on, and take on reality. I mean, I, I, think, I, I, I think about that a lot. But we had a library near us, uh, maybe a couple blocks away. And my mom and I, we would go to the library. And I was allowed to take out like four books at a time. And I would go through the four books and we'd take them back get four more, take them back. I, I mean, I was one of those kids with his nose buried in a book. You write quite a bit in the book, or some here and there in the book, about um, one of your favorite authors, Shirley Jackson, who was the author of The Haunting of Hill House. What is it about her work you adore, particularly? I, it's like, it's so ingrained in me that I love her that sometimes I stop thinking about why. I'm sure that my first encounter with Shirley Jackson was the short story, The Lottery, which in, in, I, I, you know, in, in, in the United States were mandated by law to read it. You know, in, in 10th grade, you have to read The Lottery. It was also, of course, I was very keen on twist endings. And I, and I thought all short stories should have twist endings. All movies should have twist endings. But eventually just sort of found my way to her in a sort of a backward kind of way. I mean, I remember watching uh, the Robert Wise film The Haunting with Julie Harris and Claire Bloom and being absolutely entranced with that. And then I read the novel The Haunting of Hill House. The thing that I have learned about her over time, reading her over and over and over again, is that she is simply an exquisite prose stylist of absolute clarity. The sentences are all just Never, an extra, never one word too many, never one word too few. She's quite keen on her semicolons. There's a sort of a chilly, jaundiced, occasional meanness about her worldview that I guess I'm going to have to confess rather appeals to me. And does she have that ability not just to write with absolute clarity? Can she do that fabulous stumble-stagger thing where... You, you do something that's suddenly offbeat, that, that there's the, the bad note that is the note you need to make music great? Yeah, she's very good at writing, 
beautifully constructed sentences that all hang together, you know, really well. As I said, you know, she, she likes her semicolons. It, it, they, they really sort of help her create this like claustrophobic atmosphere. And then the writing goes on and it goes on and there'll be lyrical longer passages. And then every now and then you just turn the page and it's like four word sentence and you just jump out of your own skin. Yeah. A few years ago, you wrote you were asked to copy edit some of her unpublished work because she's now deceased, of course. What kind of a challenge was that for you as a fan and as a copy editor? That, that was really interesting. And that was, I mean, that was sort of a dream come true, the idea that I was going to be copy editing my favourite writer who had died 50 years before. But her, her, two of her adult children, who were her literary executors, brought a collection to the house of their mother's previously uncollected material. Now, some of it had been published uh, already. She made quite a great living for her and her family writing for the glossy ladies' magazines, you know, writing for Glamour and Red Book uh, and Good Housekeeping and things like that, which sounds really strange when you think about the sort of worldview that she presents on the page. So uh, some of the stuff that was going into this collection was stuff that had been published, which I had the chance to just sort of look at, maybe, you know, dust off a little bit. Uh, but some of it was stuff that came right out of the drawer, stuff that she had written that had never gone past the first draft. When I first saw the material that was going in the book, I was shown Xeroxes of her typescripts. I knew from reading biographies of her that she very famously never hit the shift key when she was, when she was typing because it slowed her down. So they were, they were all in lower case. Now, we had somebody transcribe them, make word file out of them so that I could actually do some work on them. I decided up front that I was going to try to restrain myself, particularly because I'm dealing with a writer who's not there, to respond to my copy editing, to playing with punctuation, trying never to add or delete more than one word at a time, and otherwise doing my absolute level best to keep my hands to myself. <laughs> Luckily, her first drafts were so clean that I could hold to that promise. And it was really sort of a breeze to do it. I mean, I remember at one point there was a, there was a sentence in two parts, and I really thought, this sentence will be better if I simply take the two parts of the sentence and flip them in the other order. And I remember like staring at it for about 40 minutes because I was so scared to do that. And I finally decided, you want to know what? You just really want to do something right now. <laughs> and it's actually really fine just the way she wrote it. <laughs> but it was a great adventure. And, and, and she didn't come break my crockery in the middle of the night. So. <laughs> <laughs> One of the most fraught issues at the moment, I, I imagine, for a copy editor is when clarity collides with courtesy. And that's increasingly, there are many people who prefer to be known by the pronouns of they, them. But then you see sometimes in copy a profile of an artist, for example, and their pronoun for them is they and them. And you say, they came to New York in Dada. You go, oh, that, oh, was that person part of a group or something? And, and there's, there's a problem there with clarity. Do you have a view on this? And you, I'm sure you have to have a view. I have, uh, I have to have a view on it. And the thing is, yes, it's, it's tricky. And part of the evolution of the, of the pronoun, and I will call it the pronoun problem, because it is, it's a big challenge, and it's, and it's problematic for the sake of clarity. I mean, it starts 
one step before the issue of the non-binary they when you're talking about the issue of this, this simply the singular they, which most of us of a certain age were taught never to use, never to write the sentence, a student should be able to study whatever they like. And so we had that, that very sort of you know, dainty, prissy, either, either the awful notion that he is a perfectly good default pronoun because this isn't a normal person a he, you know, so a student should be able to study whatever he wants, and that's fine. Well, that's not fine. A student should be able to study whatever he or she wants. Well, that gets really tiresome after the second sentence. And at a certain point, there was a, you know, there's been a surge in the last, you know, really just in the last 10, 15 years of people insisting that the singular they, which has been part of the English language for centuries, needs to be brought back into regular use. Oh, it was used once and for singular purposes back in the day? For forever, like back to the 13th century, again, until, you know, people are starting to try to like regularize and put the language on a grid that it just doesn't want to be put on, onto which it does not want, want to be put. put. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it took, it took me a while to get used to that, to stop doing the thing that I have always done, which is always trying to edit around it, edit around it, edit around it. But then we get to the, the key issue, which is indeed the issue of the non-binary they. Um, I, had a, I had a new colleague. They were the first person I ever encountered face to face whose pronoun was they. I did an awful lot of trying never to speak of this person with a pronoun at all. <laughs> I would refer to this person as this person. I would refer to this person by this person's name. I would refer to this person as the new editor. Finally, just one day, the word they crept out of my mouth and I thought, oh, thank God that's over. <laughs> It is a challenge, though, and it is a challenge for the very reason that you state. It's a, it's a challenge for clarity, which simply means it's yet another thing that copy editors, who have a million things that they are trying to do to make manuscripts be better, it's just another thing that you have to deal with. I mean, trying to carry on a scene in a book in which there are only two characters, and they are both men, poses the challenge for using the pronoun he, and every now and then it's like, wait, which he are we talking about? Or as I always say, you know, it's like, try to write a gay sex scene sometime. <laughs> you know, his, which his? <laughs> which one does that belong to? Well, I was gonna ask you about that. Is it weird editing sex scenes? Does it feel like you're sort of going into the bedroom with a torch or something and saying, all right, what, what are we doing here? What are we doing here? Uh, does it feel a bit odd like that and intrusive? Um, yeah, it does, actually. Yeah. Oh, dear, dear idea. Is it hard for you to walk in on a sex scene in a book and when there's lots of, you know, hammering and rogering and whatever going on, you say, excuse me, I think you should write the word supine instead of prone here. <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you actually have, have you done things like that? I have had to do things like that. It's like, no, that's the other, other way. What, one of my favorite, an, inter an interviewer once asked Gore Vidal if the per first person he had sex with was a yeah. man or a woman. And Gore Vidal said, I was too polite to ask. <laughs> I, I did say your book is not didactic, but there are areas of utter language abomination which we really have to talk about, and that's corporate speak. Corporate jargon, words like impactful, 
phrases like key performance indicators, key stakeholders, tic-tac with key stakeholders on this matter. Do you see that in literature? And, and are you really ready to wield the sword through the heart of these filthy words and phrases? I mean, the thing is that there is a lot of this speak that has crept into the English language by way of business books, by way of self-help books, by way of, with all respect to my lovely colleagues who work in human resources, by way of human resources departments, which is why we no longer orient new employees, or you might orientate new employees. Yeah, we have orientation here. Yeah, we onboard them. <laughs> That's disgusting. Well, it's like... We are, yes, onboarding. It's like... What does that like, mean? That's, that's like what introducing them to the company. Exactly. And, and, to, and to practices. And of course, it's like, it's like, yeah, it sounds just like waterboarding. <laughs> but the thing is that these sorts of constructions, I think, are essentially people trying to take their own somewhat shop-worn ideas and make them sound fresher by doing awful things to the English language. And they mostly just irritate people. And I think that if you're a writer and you're going to irritate people, you should do it for a good reason and on purpose. <laughs> Not just to make yourself sound clever. All sorts of words have sort of crept into the Australian lexicon and I don't know if they've crept into the, the broader global English lexicon. I found when my son was a teenager, he was playing console video games with his friends and they would verse each other. Clearly, by your facial expression, that's not a thing in the United States. He said, yeah, I was, I was versing Jared the other day. Yeah, what? And, I, and, you know, my wife and I did our best to try and say, just don't say that. Just don't use that phrase. But then all of his friends were saying it, and it sort of entered the lexicon here. Have people noticed this in Australia? Is, is it the verb form of verses? verses. Yes, it is. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. I'm, not, I'm not sure I hate it. Uh, no. <laughs> We, we gave up after a while because everyone, yeah. everyone was using it. it. It wasn't terrible. I think I've noticed with copy editing here is when I use the word burnt, I find B-U-R-N-T, it's both an adjective and a verb. Like, she ate the burnt toast is the same spelling for she burnt the toast. I would have thought it was she burned the toast. We in the past burned. You often in the past burnt. Right. So We, in, we, we Americans. Right. Yeah. So if I... If an Australian book is translated into American, it would be translated into burned, wouldn't yes, it? Yes, and we, we, we wouldn't use learnt. Burnt or learnt? And no. we, would, we would snip the S off towards and backwards because we prefer toward and backward. There are certain English constructions that I actually prefer, even though I'm not allowed to prefer them. <laughs> I mean, I think that armor with a U has much better sort of a clanking feeling than armor without a U. And, and there's an awful uh, American version of... Now, sepulcher needs to be spelled with an R-E at the end because sepulcher with an E-R is, is, is simply not sepulchral, you know? But, you know, we have our spelling. You all have yours. My Canadian friends... As, as I think you were saying, that you feel sometimes suspended between two versions of English, so do they. Endangered words, 
a wonderful word that's endangered is disinterested. Disinterested used to mean impartial, now it's increasingly used to mean uninterested. Have, have you let that one go or are you still fighting that one? No, I, I, I hold to that, but I want to hold to that with, a, with, with the caveat that when they started out centuries ago, they were indeed the other way around. Oh. Um, <laughs> oh. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> But disinterested is such a good word. It's, it it's, a, but, but, it, it's something, it's a noble activity. Yeah, you, you, I mean, yeah. I, I think that for, for the sake of clarity, and you can't always say, oh, well, well, they did it in the 15th century, so you should do it that way. Now it's like, that, that doesn't, they did a lot of things in the 15th century <laughs> that we don't think are such good ideas anymore. So no, I will hold to the idea that to be uninterested is to lack interest, and to be disinterested is to be impartial. Because... You don't want words to just become so muddy that they lose meaning altogether. We are about to lose, and I'm going to try to stop it, but we are about to lose uh, the use of the word bemuse or bemused or bemusement because people have come to think of it, as I, as I think I phrased it once, as a sort of kind of a, I'm holding a martini and, and I'm wearing a bow tie and I'm amused. You know, it's like, it's, it's fancy amusement to be bemused. It's like, no, it's like if you're bemused, you're, you're bewitched, bothered, and bewildered. Um, and if you let go of that, the word is simply going to become pointless, like nonplussed. There was a great... Which is also in grave danger. Uh, right yes, now. indeed. Uh, there was a great Australian sportscaster of rugby league in New South Wales by the name of Rex Mossop, and some of his remarks made during the course of a rugby league game were often brought to children as an example of how not to use English. Like he was famous for once saying, the crowd is literally electrified. <laughs> and he also would say things like, let me recapitulate on what you just said a moment ago and recap that with you once more, you know. That's the kind of thing. Literally is, in, is, is a word in danger, surely. I mean, it, it's a word that if you're using it literally, there's no need to use it. And if you're using it figuratively, then just don't use it. <laughs> <laughs> Have you noticed another creepy phrase that's entering the lexicon? Reaching out. I get emails from publicists saying, yes, you're hearing this? Dear Richard, I'm reaching out to you to tell you about this band that's touring Australia. And I, I always want to send a rude email saying, you're reaching out, are you all right? <laughs> The one that stops me in my figurative, not literal tracks is when I'm sitting in a meeting room with people. Well, I used to sit in meetings rooms. Anyway, if I'm sitting in a meeting room with people and somebody says, oh, well, let's take this offline. It's like, we are offline. <laughs> and now it's time for us to go offline. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a gigantic thank you to the wonderful Mr. Benjamin Byer. Benjamin Dreyer's book is called Dreyer's English, An Utterly Correct Guide to Clarity and Style. Huge thanks to Paul Penton and Tim Jenkins from ABC Melbourne for the recording and to Michaela Maguire and all the crew at the Melbourne Writers' Festival. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. abc.net.au slash conversations is our website. I'm Richard Feitler.
You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.